Please be seated. In our sermon series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're in a very encouraging section that speaks about the benefits of our salvation, the benefits that we have from Christ's redemption in this life. There are three primary benefits, and then there's several other benefits that we have as well. Question 32 summarizes this part of the catechism for us. So let's confess together question 32, the answer to that. I'll ask a question, you do the answer. Question 32, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Now last week we looked at the first of the three primary benefits, and that is justification. We saw that justification involves declaring us that we are, that we are acceptable in God's sight. We're acceptable to be His people forever and to spend eternity with Him. But how can God say such a thing of us when we with the rest of the human race are sinners who are guilty of rejecting God and of breaking His law and have been cast out of His presence and sentenced to eternity in hell? We are justified, declared righteous by God by faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in Him to stand in our place as our representative, to bear our sins, which He has already done, and to be our righteousness, which He has already fulfilled. We saw in Romans 3 that our acceptance is not based on our own righteousness, but on our faith, in, but our faith is in the righteousness that Jesus obtained for His people. Jesus did what God was required of him to make all of us righteous. Namely, that he as our representative lived the life that we ought to have lived and paid the penalty of our sin that we would otherwise have had to pay. So let's confess in unison what the Catechism says about justification in question 33. Question 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What a wonderful thing to know that though we are sinners, God has fully accepted us as righteous through faith in Christ. He has obtained for us what we could never obtain for ourselves, acceptance with God forever. But our Lord is so very gracious that mere acceptance is not enough for Him. And I certainly don't mean to say that justification is anything to sneeze at. It is a huge blessing. But God does not stop there with His benefits. It's outrageously marvelous just to think that we who are cut off and condemned to hell have been saved and brought and made righteous. When we see our true state as sinners, we're like the prodigal son in the parable who says to his father whom he rejected and whose inheritance he squandered, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight 
and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, make me as one of your hired servants. It would be enough if God justified us, accepted us as righteous as one of his hired servants. But God goes far beyond that when he redeems us. I am very happy to tell you that everyone that he justifies, he also adopts to be his very own child, his very own son. We are actually received into his house, not as mere servants, which would be marvelous in itself, but as sons, which is inconceivably marvelous. Adoption is the subject of the question that we're looking at this week. Question 34. Let's confess this also. Question 34. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. In other words, we truly become God's children in every sense of it. Our scripture reading related to this is very short, but it's packed with wonderful content that we will never be able to fully unpack the fullness and blessing of it all in all of eternity. It's from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and only the first three verses. I'll give careful attention as I read to you these marvelous words from God's holy and sure word to those who are his. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. May God add his blessing to his matchless, encouraging word. I hope you're pretty familiar with that verse. If you listen when, uh, when I pray here at church, then you are familiar with that. Because I often speak of that and the hope that we have that when we see him, we will be like him. That we have been called children of God. This is a great blessing that belongs to us. So as we look at this, um, 1 John 3, 1 exhorts us to behold what manner of love God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So I want to begin with that. Let's look at what manner of love it is and consider that. It is a gracious, loving thing for a couple to adopt a child as their very own. Here is a child that, for some reason, is without parents to care for him. And here is a loving couple who wants to take such a child, even though it is not their own, and to love this child as their own son or daughter, to make this child their own child. Often they must go to great expense to do this, and then they will provide for this child after they have gone to expense to adopt the child. Then they will give this child a loving, caring home where the child is nurtured and provided for. What a blessing, what a turnaround it is to be someone with no one and then to have a father and a mother. 
What a wonderful thing for the child. Without adoption, here would be a child that no one claimed as their own. A child that no one was really committed to through all the years of growing up. Maybe they go to one home and another. Maybe they even go to a fine institution that provides for the child's physical needs and workers in those institutions. Maybe even good workers that love the children and and do the best that they can. Often it's not like that, but perhaps so. But there would be no one committed to that child as their child. Maybe one worker would come and then they would get a job somewhere else and move on. Another would come and go. And, uh, but a parent, is there's no substitute to have a parent that, that stays with you and that cares for you and has you as their own child. I tell you, every child yearns to have that kind of love, that kind of father. Sadly, there are many children whose fathers do not love them. They may provide for them like the orphanages do. They often... Many times don't even do that, though. But they do not love the child with that loving commitment that we all yearn for. Someone who really and truly cares for you and who is truly out for your best interest. We must not let the failure of our earthly fathers color our views of fatherhood. We all know what a good father ought to be even from seeing the shortcomings, perhaps, of our own. Someone, a father ought to be someone who is stronger and wiser and more loving than you are because he has matured and grown in his ability to love and care for you and who uses his strength and his wisdom and his love for you as one who is fully committed to you. He may not always do what you think is best at the time, but he is someone who knows what is best And who is so committed to you that he will do what is best. We yearn for someone like that in our lives. And how blessed we are if we have someone like that. And I tell you that God is a father like that. God the father is all that a father ought to be. He is the original father. If you want to know what a true father is, look at God. He is the eternal father to his eternal son. He has stood by him. It is interesting that in the New Testament, and especially in John's gospel, Jesus presents God the father as one who is always giving. Jesus talks about God as his father in John more than any of the other gospels. He loves his son and he gives all things to him, Jesus says in John 13, 3. He delights in his son and gives him praise. That's told us in Matthew 17, 5. And he is the father who gives his son to us. John 3, 16. Jesus, his son, speaks of the sheer delight that he has had from all eternity being his son. And he speaks of how he can't wait to return to him in John 17. He is a son longing to go home to his father, as he tells us in John 14, 28. So whatever perversions there are in earthly fathers, God the Father is the original father, and in him there are no perversions at all. He dearly loves his son, and his son dearly loves him. And if anyone was ever strong and wise and loving, 
And so someone that a child, a son would completely and totally count on, God the Father is that one. And the marvelous love that John tells us to behold is that we should be called the children of God. We should be His children. It is one thing for Jesus to be the Son of God, that He is by nature. He was always God's Son. And in the sense that one who is God can be the Son to another who is God, in that, in that sense. It's, uh, of course, different than what it is for us. God doesn't have a material substance like we do. He is on a whole different plane of existence. But there is between God the Father and God the Son a relationship that is like the human relationship of a father to a son. Really, we should say it the other way around, that our relationships of a father to a son are like the relationship that God has with his son because that is the original one. But it is different because ours is a created one in time where the Son is brought forth by the Father and so on. Um, but it's part of God's very being to have, to, be, to have within Himself three distinct persons, two of which are Father and Son. This is His way from all eternity. He has made us in, after His likeness, but on a creaturely level. But for this loving Father... To take us who are mere creatures as sons, that is unfathomable love. We are mere creatures, and so not natural sons. As creatures, we are vastly inferior to him, yet he has called us sons. And of course, then he, of course, when he calls us his sons, that means that we really are his sons. He calls us sons in in a personal way, but it's also in an official way that we really are his sons. For him to take those as children who are so inferior to him, especially when he has already a, a son that he delights in, is an act of amazing love. But that's not all. He also had taken us as sons even though we rejected him. It is not that we... It is not just that we are creatures and inferior to him, but even more that we are ungrateful creatures. We were created as servants in right standing with him, but we rejected him as our God and our master and our Lord. It was the height of ingratitude and the height of perversion. For this, he had justly kicked us out of the garden. He came to rebuke us. He cursed the earth on account of us. And he sentenced us to death and hell. It is enough that he should justify us. As I said at the beginning, it's unbelievable that he should justify us when we were so wrong toward him. That he should love us so that he would give his only son to die for you, your sins, so that you could be justified. That he might restore you even to be a servant. But he has gone beyond that and made us his sons. What can we say to this? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. He is now totally committed to us as a father. He has taken us as full members of his own household. This is beyond understanding. The wise, strong, loving Father of Jesus Christ is now our Father in and through Jesus Christ. You now have what every child wants. 
if you have come to Christ. You have a strong, wise, loving Father who is totally committed to you forever. How marvelous it is to have a God this strong, this wise, this loving as your Father. Let me show you some of the benefits then of having Him as your Father. It gives you complete security. There's so many people in our world that are insecure. They're not sure if they're loved. They're always feeling the need to try to prove themselves to other people. And it often makes them more obnoxious to other people when they're trying to do that. But God is your Father. He is looking after you. You have security in Him, acceptance and love. You have no need to worry, no need to be afraid, no need to be anxious about anything because He's looking after you. This Father who is so committed to you is strong. He's able to protect you and help you. He's wise. He always knows the best thing to do. And He will not allow anyone or anything ever to harm you. I would like to show you how closely committed he is to us as his people. Please turn to Psalm 139 for a moment. Do you know this psalm? This psalm speaks about how God knows everything about us. Everything about us. In the first four verses, it says that he searches us and that he knows us and that he even knows all of our inmost thoughts and even the things that we haven't said yet, but we're about to say. Listen as I read it, these first four verses. O Lord, this is Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And then in verses 7 through 12, it goes on to say that we can never get out from under God's sight. It doesn't matter if we go to the highest heavens or into the deepest sea or into the dark blackness. God still knows all about us. And then verses 13 to 16, it says that God even knew all about us and about our future when we were being formed in the womb all along. God has known us. Now, there are three ways that we can look at this intimate knowledge. What is it like to have this Father who knows everything about you? Well, we can look at it and marvel at the way that we would look at a supercomputer. We can say, wow, God knows everything. Isn't that quite remarkable? But to do so is to forget that God is a holy God. And a personal God, he's not a computer that has a lot of data stored about you. He's someone that knows you in a personal way. So it's no good to look at it like a computer. When we have a sense of him as a holy and personal God, then we can become terrified and resentful that God knows all about my, he knows all of my thoughts. I mean, it would be intimidating for another person to know all of your thoughts. What about the holy God? It's very intimidating. We can be bothered that why does he pay so much attention to me? Why doesn't he leave me alone? John Paul Sartre found his gaze embarrassing. He called God a voyeur. 
He hated the fact that God knew about him and could see all of his thoughts and he, he, he shook his fist at him. But that's not at all the way that Psalm 139 presents this intimate knowledge of God. If you see God as a loving father, then his intimate knowledge of us is a precious thing. As it says in verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. He knows everything. It's precious because it represents the tender care of a father. He knows all about us and he is constantly caring for us, protecting for us, and providing for us. That's one of the things that I struggle with personally as a pastor so much that it's so hard for me to retain in, in my mind about all, all people and their needs and, the, and to keep all, and even my own children and my family. It's hard to keep all of that, that information and to remember and to understand. I don't understand so well. But God is not like that. He completely understands everything. We find that when we awake, as verse 18 says, that He is there caring for us, protecting us, providing for us. Even when we are sleeping and we are oblivious to Him, He is still intimately involved. We're still with Him. He has not left us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Look at some of the things it means for Him to be so intimate with all your ways. It means that He's protecting you. Verse 5, You have hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. A hedge. What is this hedge? It's a hedge of protection. He protects us constantly from what is in front of us and what is behind us. You're never brought into anything that God didn't anticipate. You're never brought into anything in your life that God didn't design just for you. He has laid his gracious hand upon us. Nothing can by any means harm us under his watchful eye. It is rather perfectly designed for our good. It means that he is leading us and upholding us, as verse 10 says, even there, talking about the place of darkness, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall guide me in a place where nobody can see a thing. God can see. Wherever we are, he is there to lead us. And his right hand refers to his strength. He upholds us in that place. All things, in every situation. It means that he has planned out all that concerns us in advance. Verse 16 says that all our days were written in his book. He planned them with loving, intimate care. Just think of that. You know how parents will try to plan things sometimes for their children and what they're going to do? They just get a little sketchy outline. God has planned everything. Whatever happens to you today, every event, every situation in your life, God has planned. How thankful we should be then for His care and attention to us. Maybe you've had something very hard that has come into your life. God planned that. God designed that. Go into that with Him. Don't go into it ignoring Him and pushing Him away. He's your Father. He embraces you. He's fitting you for eternity. He's not fitting you for a palace in this world. He's fitting you for an inheritance with Him forever and ever. And that means we have to go through 
all kinds of troubles in this world. You know, I, I think about when, um, I remember when, I, I've told some of you this, when Wayne Sproul was, was on his deathbed and, and he said, I think I'm losing my mind. When I went to visit him, he said, am I losing my mind? And I said, you, you might well be at this time. I said, but that doesn't matter. God is your father and he's not losing his mind. He knows what he's doing with you. He's doing this to bring you where you need to be. And, and he, he just beamed. Like his whole face lit up, Wayne Sproul, because he, he realized that that was true. When he was, he was dying, he was bedridden at that time. Now I want you to look at how the psalmist calls upon God as the one who has his loving eyes on us all day long. In verse 19, he prays that God will deal with his enemies. He knows that God loves him and is looking out for him. So he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, depart. Oh, God, depart from me. Therefore, you bloodthirsty men. Sorry, I didn't read that. Well, let me read it again. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, depart from me. Therefore, you bloodthirsty men. God will deal with the devil. God will deal with the world. God will deal with an abusive parent. God will deal with a bloodthirsty, selfish dictator that he puts in power over us. You can fully trust him to do what is best for you as his child. That bloodthirsty dictator was put there for your sake if you're his child. And then at the end of the psalm, in verse 23 through 24, he asked God to search his heart for two things. To know my anxieties, he says. You need to ask your father to search out all that insecurity that you have so that he can help you to have a stronger trust and a quiet rest in his loving care. We don't trust God the way we should. And this is something to ask him to help you with. Freely come to him and he will help you. And then the second thing the psalmist asks him to do is search out the wickedness that is in him. God loves you as a father. And you can ask him boldly. He already knows about all the wrong that's in you. Lord, search me and show me if there is any wicked way in me. As a loving father, he wisely and gently corrects us and leads us from glory to glory. If you know him as a father, you will be glad that he knows all about you. Because that means that he can better lead you and better guide you to where you need to go. And that brings us to the next wonderful thing that is true when you have God as your father. It gives you unlimited resources. Having God as your father means that you can come to him for help. And he is not without ability to help. That's one of the great benefits of having a father who loves you, isn't it? You can come to him whenever you need help. And you can be sure that he will receive you. He won't cast you out and that he will do what he can to help you. Take a look at Romans 8 and you can see that this is definitely true about God. The passage is telling us how God's spirit works in us to help us die to sin and to live to God. This is a difficult and painful process, isn't it? We have to die to sin. It hurts to die. It hurts to be crucified with Christ. It's painful. It's shameful. And it hurts. But we have to have that. Sin has to be purged from us. This world is going to be a place of much tribulation, Jesus told us. 
It's difficult and painful, but yet God is the one who has his hand in it. In the middle of all the talk about this in Romans 8, we are told that one of the things the Spirit does as he works in us is he causes us to see that God is our daddy, our papa. In Romans 8, 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's not as if the Father is standing over you as a taskmaster. He is standing over you as a father who is shaping you. Why does he show you the sin that is in you? It's because he's shaping you. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives us this sense of sonship so that we will know that we can come to him in our time of need. Isn't that marvelous? God is there for you as your loving Father, completely accessible to you, that you might call on him. No father loves like God the Father. No father has resources like God the Father to help you. No father has strength and power like God the Father. And no father has wisdom like God the Father. And as you go on as a Christian, the Spirit helps you to see more and more that He is a daddy to you. That you can come to Him and look to Him and He will help you. My dear brothers and sisters, if only we could see this more clearly. It would help us so much. Too often we live our lives as if we have no father in heaven who dearly loves us as his children. We do not call on him in our time of need. And when we do call on him, we don't trust him. And that hinders our prayers. And when he answers, we do not trust what he chooses to do. Like James says, you you ask for wisdom. And then when God sends you a trial, you say, why did this happen to me? And you, you, you begin to doubt and you're double-minded. Did you really want to grow? Then why did you ask God for help and he answered you and now you don't like what he did? And then we stop calling on him. Very foolish. This is so very sad because we have such resources in him, such care, such help. And we act like we're orphans with no one to help us. With no, what, what power and help is available to us to grow in godliness? What power and help is available to help in reaching our, our loved ones? Your prayer life needs to change. Stop acting like an orphan who has no place before God when you have a father in heaven. Start praying to him as a father who loves you dearly and who knows exactly what you need and who has the power and wisdom to do exactly what needs to be done. And you know what? I want to add something too that even when you don't come to God in the right way and when you're fumbling along and you don't seek Him out the way you should, if you're His child, He's still at work with you. Even through that, He's going to bring about lessons through you fumbling around and not coming to Him the way you should. It's not that it's all dependent on you coming to Him just exactly the way you should. He's still your father. You will have a greater joy and sense of his presence and encouragement if you come to him in the right way and you trust him and you receive him as a father. But even if you struggle with God as your father and you're wrestling and you're, 
you're, you're grinding away. God is still committed and will do what he has promised to do. Think about the disciples. They didn't trust the Lord so often. And he was working the whole time. He worked in them. I mean, even when we see them denying him, like we are in the passage where that was one of the best things that ever happened to them. They came out of that with a greater trust than they'd ever would have had if they hadn't, hadn't blundered like that. So God is in all of it. Now this leads to the next great privilege of having God as our Father. If you have God as your Father then, uh, that you can come to in your time of need, it also gives you hope, doesn't it? Where's your hope? Is it in you? Is it in how well you trust God? Your hope is in Him. Part of being a son involves having an inheritance from your father. As a, fa- as a father, the prodigal son said to his older son, all that I have is yours. And you see still in Romans, Romans eight seventeen, it says, and if children, if we are children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. As heirs of Christ, it means that all that the father has is ours. Right? What the prodigal son's dad said to his uh, older son, all that I have is yours, you're my son. But why does it tack on that bit that we're heirs if indeed we suffer with him that we might be also glorified together? Because of what I told you before. We need to die to sin. And that's a hard business. So having this inheritance means that you're going to go through trouble before you receive the inheritance. It's part of the process. The Bible never pretends that the path from here to our inheritance is an easy one. Our Father knows that we need hard things to prepare us for eternal glory in His house. That's part of what He's doing here. If you live for a long time, it's likely that you'll get old and feeble and decrepit and all the rest of it. That will be part of the process. If you're young and strong, it's likely that you have all kinds of troubles that come into your life from day to day. You don't have to understand it all. Just trust Him that He knows exactly what He's doing. The Bible makes no pretenses about such things. It tells us that we're going to be heirs with Christ, but if we suffer with Him before we are glorified with Him. But just think of this, an heir with Christ, glorified with Him. That's what's at the end of the road. That is totally, incredibly amazing hope. Heirs with Christ, glorified with Christ. That's our hope. We really are sons, and all that he has really is ours. This hope is guaranteed to us. It is certain, because we are sons of God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. He will see to it that we obtain this inheritance. I love what it says in John 17 about this, in verses 22 through 23. I remember when the Lord opened this passage up to me a number of years ago, and it was so precious. It says, and the glory, Jesus says, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Father and Son, just like we are Father and Son, that they may be one just like we are. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me 
and have, now listen to this, have loved them as you have loved me. That is mind-boggling. As sons, he loves you even as he loves his own son. You are part of his family. That's what this means. And do you know what is true of sons as compared to servants? John 8, 35, what does Jesus say? And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. He's not there to work for a little while and then he's done. He's there always. We are truly part of the family and will never be cast out. We are loved as Jesus is loved. Jesus says that he yearns for us. He, his, his great desire is he was going to the cross. John 17 was the prayer he prayed when he was going to the cross. And his great desire is that they will come and see that love that I've had between me and my father all, these, all eternity, that love that I've had, that they'll see that glory that I've had and be brought to share in that, that circle of love. John 17, 24, he expresses this yearning that we see this love that is in his family. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. He can't wait to bring us home to see this, how delightful this will be. But he also wants to bring us into his house so that we can start loving the way he and the Father love. It's not just that he's going to love us. But you know, one of the most disgusting things about us is the way that we aren't able to love other people very well. And he's going to change that because we're his sons. We come very short of this now. But when we enter the Father's house in glory, we will see that beautiful love and we'll be caught up in it. And we'll be able to love that way. We'll actually begin to do that. Look at what he prays, still John 17, in verse 25 through 26. Oh, righteous Father, he's passionate here. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them. And I in them. Jesus came so that we could come and live in his family as sons and daughters of God that love the way God's sons and daughters are supposed to love. This is your hope as God's child. John sums this up in our text. Okay, going back to 1 John now in our text. 1 John 3, 2, when he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Do you see here the two things that Jesus spoke about in John 17? As children of God, we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see him in that beautiful relationship that he's had all eternity, father to son before the world was formed. And when we see him, then there's the second thing. We will be like him. The love 
that is in the Father and the Son will be in us as God's own children. That is the glorious hope we have as the children of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the sufferings we have to go through now, okay, it's not a bright prospect, you know, we have to go through the sufferings, but he says they don't even compare with the glory that we're going to have. The sufferings we went through to get there will be nothing compared with the glory when we receive it. It will be such a small price to pay. He tells us in Romans 8 that, uh, Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How should you respond to this wonderful news? How should it affect you to know that this heavenly father of yours with all of these resources and all of this love and commitment is bringing you to live in his family forever? It ought to fill you with a longing that stirs up prayer and joy and thanksgiving in you that you might become all that the father promises to make you. This, too, is summed up beautifully in our text in 1 John 3, 3, where John says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Plead with him that that beautiful love that we have talked about will start to show in your life. Purify yourself as he is pure. So that instead of being a bucket of selfish desires, that you're full of love for God. And for the people around you, beautiful love that gives to others the way your daddy gives. Trust your father to do his gracious work in you. Call upon him, rejoicing in his love. Trust him that he knows what he's doing. You are his child and he dearly loves you and all his resources are at your disposal. Nothing can go wrong when God is your father. Nothing, absolutely nothing can go wrong. Please stand and let's pray. Lord, as we approach you, it is customary for us to say our father or O father or gracious father or something of that nature. We pray that we would not say those words ever in a glib way. Father, we pray that rather we would say those words with an intensity of delight. That you have made us your sons and daughters. Father, how can we even fathom such a thing? We're going to be in that glorious house of yours beholding the love that you have had with your son from all eternity and actually participating in the giving and receiving of that love. Oh Lord, receiving it, what a blessing and delight that will be, but also giving it, it seems so impossible. But Father, we praise you and thank you that you have made us your sons and daughters and that that is the reality for us. We will be in your house forever. You will bring that glory to us on the day that we enter into your glorious presence. We won't allow your sons to, to be in your presence without that perfection, without all that you've made us to be. 
And Father, we know that somehow in your inscrutable wisdom, that all the things that we go through in this world are part of the process for preparing us for that glory and the fullness of that glory. We pray, Lord, that you would do all the work that needs to be done and that we would trust you all the way through. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have. Thank you, Lord, that even when we have come to you and we've cast ourselves on you, but we're not sure of what you're doing with us and not even sure of our salvation, perhaps, that still, Lord, that if indeed our eyes are cast toward you in faith, then we will still be blessed, Lord even though we might not have a sense of it. And we pray, Lord, that knowing that, that, that you are that kind of a God, that we would have great joy and that we would gain an assurance of our faith, that we are truly your children. Oh, Father, thank you so much for what you have promised to us, the precious things in your word. It sort of seems like we must have made a mistake in understanding how could these things possibly be true. But we praise you, Lord, that they are true. This is better than uh, we know how people get all excited and worked up when they win a big lottery or something like that. And they think that, oh, now everything will be so good. It won't be. But Lord, with this living in your house, with your love, your resources and ability to love others that you give to us, training us up as your sons. Lord, this is a marvelous thing. It will be a thing that is never exhausted, a thing that never becomes old and worn. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work amen